Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan, live from New York City. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they saw the marquee. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Zeynep Salyamiz, a Turkish activist who is spreading the word about animals with her powerful graphics work for Save Movement, which is now being used by activists all over the world. It's so cool. And she'll also tell us all about the animal rescue efforts during the really horrific Turkish earthquake earlier this year. This is a, an interview that I know no one else is doing. I'm very excited that we were able to connect with her because there's some powerful stuff here. Yeah, I didn't really know what to expect, and I just love this interview. So, yeah, I hope you, you do as well. I just always love it when when we connect with you know, like really passionate vegan animal activists from other countries, mm -hmm. from places I've never been, places I've never thought of, and just realize that we're everywhere. Yeah. I always think that when I'm leaving thank you videos to our donors and I'm like, you, I wish you were on this side sometimes to see how many flock members there are because we're everywhere, like all over the world. And right now we are in New York City where we ran our hen house for many, many years. And we're here on sort of a vacation. I think it's definitely a vacation. Yes. I've said sort of because I worked this morning and we're technically working right now, but it is a big, yes, we're seeing a lot of Broadway plays, which is wonderful that we get to do that. Yeah. We, I mean, I wish we could talk about them, but we haven't seen them yet, but I'm real, I'm super excited. Totally. And the, of course we took the train down. We took Amtrak down. It's a very long trip. But From Rochester. It's possible there are some people listening who do not know where you live. From Rochester down to New York City, it was it's like a seven-hour train ride. It, which should be like a four-hour train ride because this country does not have adequate trains. Right. And it's driving me crazy. Joe Biden was supposed to be Mr. Amtrak, and he was supposed to be like like <laughs> remaking the trains. And they're not remade. They're always late. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're nice. Um, but right. they're not super nice. I'm sure it's like when you go to other countries and, and you, you know, you've been in the New York city subway and you think that's what subways are like. And you go to other countries and it's like, wow, right. this is beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm sure other trains in other countries are beautiful too. Like it's just annoying. I love trains. It was still a lovely drive, by the way, driving would have taken a lot less time, but who wants to do that? And flying takes like 45 minutes, but well, it takes 45 minutes once you got into the airport, waited for the plane, like the plane is late, yeah. then you sit on the plane and then it takes off and then you get to this other airport that's not anywhere. I mean, then you're in New York City at JFK, which is like, like okay. out, out. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. I don't we like to it, fly. I don't like and, to fly. And also and in the middle of the, the middle of the whole thing, you're in this sardine can, which a bunch of people with like really, really crowded bunch of people and breathing stale air and up really high in the air and could die at any moment. So yeah. Other than that. <laughs> anyway, there is also really lovely Amtrak food that is vegan. Do you think I'm becoming eccentric as I get older? Eccentric is definitely one word. I'm not <laughs> sure it's the first one that springs to mind, but I, I think you have to watch it as you get older to not sound really crazy. Okay. All right. No, you gotta be no, careful. No. You gotta say that anything about flying. Oh my God. Okay. So the front of the USA today, while we were traveling, we saw this, the fr front cover of the USA today, the next pandemic could spring from the US meat supply, new report finds. This, this has been getting really amazing coverage. Like, I'm not sure it's going to do anything because as Delcy Winders, who is quoted throughout, 
very lovely quotes, by the way, really brilliant quotes, says at the very end, don't we see the writing on the wall? Scientists are telling us there's a looming threat of a zoonotic outbreak that could make COVID look like a cakewalk, and we're still just ignoring it, even after what we've gone through over the last couple of years. Yeah, that really says it all, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't say it all. It says a lot about this piece of it. Yeah, pandemic risk. Interesting that this is something that like kind of broke through with with all of the horrors of animal agriculture. So good for these folks at Harvard and in particular, the researcher there, the woman who um, really put this whole report together. Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm sure she wasn't the only one. She's one of the lead authors and she's the associate director of policy and research with the animal and policy program at Harvard Law School. That's Ann Linder. And she seems to be, you know, the, the spokesperson for it. But good for these folks at Harvard. This was also, uh, it was a combined report from the um, Harvard Law School and New York University programs. So, you know, sometimes it seems like academics, like, you know, it's like, what are we really doing here? Like, get something done. And here we are on the front page of USA Today terrifying people. And this this article is really good. Like it has quotes from the meat industry, but it's kind of the meat industry's quotes end up being sort of like our quotes usually end up being like an aside, you know, they have to fit it in at the end, uh, not the theme. And this unbelievable photograph from Mm -hmm. Joanne MacArthur of, uh, you don't even want to see this photograph of these little mink kits. I guess that's what they call baby minks kits in, in this horrifying cage. And yeah, is this the thing that's going to scare people finally, like, like, and show them that what we're doing to animals is really, really sick? Because I don't get it. I don't get it. I say that every week, don't I? I don't get it why people don't get it. Yeah. So, but good for these these folks at Harvard and NYU. They really broke through. And for Delcy, she was not involved in doing the report because she's, of course, at Vermont Law School, uh, which also has an Animal Law and Policy Institute. But she was heavily quoted, uh, you know, as as a person in the know about these issues. And she really got a lot of great points across. I highly recommend checking out this article. Yes, definitely. So before we get to the interview, switching gears, it's it's funny to me that so many people, quote, on the outside, think of vegans as just food obsessed all the time. Because when we were coming to the city, I have a, a good friend who sent me a list of like restaurants that she was like, oh, you, you have to go to all of these restaurants. And and I was like, you know, I'm just like go to whatever is around the corner from me or like as close as possible. And I'm a vegan who's not a foodie. You know, I enjoy food. I like eating it. How do you feel about that? I'm definitely the same way. Yeah. I, I eat pretty simply. Yeah. But like, do you feel like being a non-foodie vegan is it like impacts the way people in our lives see veganism like is it better for people who aren't vegan to see us eating these elaborate meals at these very fancy new restaurants my experience has been in in influencing people who aren't vegan that nothing fucking nothing matters at all that's pretty much my my experience like whether i was a foodie or not like uh would not make them think for one instant about whether it's a bad idea to eat a living, breathing creature. Are you throwing in the towel? No, because no. you sound I like have, it. I have sounded negative for my whole life. Don't don't accuse me of giving up. I'm no, just... I don't think you'd ever give up. Exactly. So I guess I should caveat that. But like, if nothing works, then I mean, then what works? Well, you just keep 
keep going and keep trying. And there's, I think there are many different pieces to the puzzle. So this works a little bit, that works a little bit. You put them together and all of a sudden you've got an article on the front page of USC Today and that might work a little bit. But I'm past thinking that there's a fix, that there's like one simple thing that needs to be done, that uh, everybody will wake up. Part of the problem is I don't understand. I say this all the time, so I'm sorry for constantly repeating myself, but I don't get it. I don't get why people don't care. It's like voting for Trump. I don't get it. I read all the articles in the New Yorker and Atlantic and, you know, what's why people vote for it's still beyond me. Humans just confuse me. So I think you just keep trying things and, and doing what you can and hoping we come up with something. But I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think it's many, many pieces. And all of a sudden it will come together and people will wake up and somebody will get credit for it and good for them. But it is the result of a myriad of, of efforts by many different people doing many different things. That last part, I could not possibly agree with more. Like I was thinking about cultivated meat and also just like the rise of plant. No, there's meat. no silver bullet. Well, th- but I was thinking about the fact that like these movements, if you want to call it that, or these you know directions that we seem to be going in as a society, they're not being driven by vegans or the animal rights movement, but I think that they were buoyed by vegans and the animal rights movement. It makes me think of someone like teaching a little child to ride a bike and they're like, the training wheels are off for the first time and they're holding the back of the bike. Like for me, it was my mom. And then at some point she lets go. And like, to me, that that's the vegans. Like we were the ones holding the the bike and letting it go. And Nice, Nice metaphor. The only thing that's a little worrisome is that we're not the ones riding the bike. So we don't totally know where the bike winds up. Right. We could totally let go of that bike seat and think everything's fine. And boom, crash, the kid falls over. Right. Yeah. That's why I don't think there's a silver bullet. I don't think it's like, oh, once cultivated meat gets, you know, cheap and everybody can get it, we'll be fine. No, I like, it's just, I don't think there's anything Mm -hmm. that's a fix. It's, but I do believe that it's possible, not necessarily going to happen, but possible that we can make real change in how many animals are tortured and killed for food. Uh, if we keep trying whatever we try, and that's like why, you know, what our hand house has, has always been about. I know someone before, let, let me just end with this before we get to Zainab. I know someone who cares about animals a lot. She's a real bleeding heart. It's mostly companion animals. And she she's sort of vegetarian-ish, I think is what she would describe herself as, which, you know, means nothing, but she has not really given any thought to dairy and eggs, which there was a time when I hadn't either, and then I did. So anyway, she's very intrigued by cultivated meat. And I got a message from her the other day saying, I wanted to know know if cultivated milk exists. And it does. And of course, we know that because we're inside baseball here. But I was wondering what was going through her head that made her look that up. And that gave me a little bit of hope. I mean, that felt like, oh, she actually took it upon herself to figure this out. Yeah. Like, like I said, I have no idea how people think about this. So that's a really interesting fact. I hope, I hope loads of people are out there are thinking, well, cultivated meat is great. And once we have that, we don't, we won't, have to kill animals anymore. I don't know why they would think that. And, you know, I'm not sure cultivated meat is going to work or we all have our fingers crossed at this point, but who knows? But for some reason, if that's the thing that, that makes people say, yeah, now I'll stop torturing animals. Well, good. 
Okay, let's end on that sort of positive note and get to our interview today. Do you think we're switching our vibe at our henhouse? Like we used to be really, I don't know, positive. Do you think that we're... I think I have always been a cynical bitch. On that note, (laughs) Zeynep Salyumiz is a Turkish art director and graphic designer who after becoming vegan left her corporate job in the advertising industry after realizing how anthropocentric and speciesist the industry is. Totally. I'm with you, Zainab. She now works at the Animal Save Movement as the global graphics coordinator, where she uses her expertise and know-how to expose the truth about animal agriculture by directing and creating thousands of powerful multilingual graphics on a global scale. And most importantly, she has two cat friends, Delilah and Pixel. She will be joining Marianne right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Zainab. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be talking to you, both because I want to talk to you about your own work, which is really fascinating. You do work with the Animal Safe Movement. And because I don't think we've ever interviewed somebody from Turkey. So I'm particularly excited about that. Because of what's happened in Turkey over the past, well, I'm not sure how long ago the earthquakes were, maybe six months ago, because that's such a huge thing. Before we get into your work, I'd kind of like to talk a little bit about the impact of the earthquakes on you and your family. And I know you did some animal rescue work vis-a-vis the earthquakes. Can you tell us just a bit about where we are now and what you went through and some of that work? Of course, regarding the earthquake, it was about four months ago. We had extremely difficult weeks and it will take almost decades for us to raise the tracks of the earthquake. Animal Same Moment Turkey activists rescued about 300 animals, including the cats, the birds, the rabbits, the dogs. The majority of them were injured from the earthquake zone and they are still taking care of them to finding a new safe home for them. I'm so proud of them. I think the achievements should go down history during the earthquakes. None of the team members slept properly for weeks, ate properly, not even showered for days and weeks. We located in Ankara, which is the capital of Turkey, and the earthquake zone is about nine to 10 hours long for us. So we made more than 10 come and goes to earthquake zone to save much as possible that we can rescue. So after that time, after all of these uh, come and goes, we came a point that these rescues are not safe for us anymore because the government started to put the power of soldiers. They were trying to grab us and jail us 
because there were so many teeth and unwanted things during the earthquake zone. You know, there are so many types of human in the world. So according to official numbers, we have lost 50,000 people, but it's a country which has no democracy. The government is playing with the numbers because the elections come. We think the real that number is minimum half a million. Uh, So, by the way, these are only the human numbers. Uh, No one is counting for the animals in this country. Wow. That's really extraordinary. And one even can't imagine the amount of animals that have been impacted. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear about it. I mean, of course, we heard a great deal about it. It was news all over the world, but I'm sure being there was just completely devastating. I hope you and your family and the people you work with all are okay. I know you weren't in the zone, but still traveling in and out of the zone must have been dangerous. And and thank you so much for doing that and for saving those animals. I assume that these were mostly animals who had been companion animals who were left homeless and wandering. Is that mostly who you rescued? Mostly, yes. And in the earthquake zone, it's also animal acts on, uh, including cows and dogs and donkeys. The majority of the population just gone right after the earthquake, as far as we know. For the other ones who have survived, we also try to help by reaching them food, water, and supplies. But we have lost majority of the population. Unbelievable. It's almost hard to change subjects after talking about a tragedy of that magnitude. But one of the reasons I did want to talk to you is about your work, which is really international in scope, not just in Turkey. And so you work with the Animal Save Movement, who I imagine most of our listeners are familiar with to some extent, but I really want to hear more about it because I'm fascinated by the kind of work that you do. You do graphic design of materials. Is that correct? Can you tell us what kind of materials you work with and in what languages? And then we'll talk a little bit about how you get them to people and what they use them for. My pleasure. So my title is Animal Same Moment is Global Graphics Coordinator. My main job is coordinate all of the requests, all of the translations. We work more than 20 languages so far, but our main communication language is in English, actually. Animal Same Moment is working with more than 80 countries actively, Uh, So far, I'm trying to uphive our language, the translation numbers, so we can reach our voice to every single corner of the world. My other, one of my main responsibilities is also enlarging the languages so we can reach the diversity goal that we need to get in. I want actually to the languages before we finish the year. I'm not sure I will manage, but I'm trying to reach my goal. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you work with? I mean, presumably you don't know 200 languages unless you're really, really multilingual. So who do you work with to translate Animal Saves materials into other languages? And how are you sure that the the right message is getting out? How, How do you do that? It's actually all about the teamwork, in my opinion. I only coordinate the things, all of the requests, that's all. And I'm also creating the visual communication language, but the individuals, the local activists are getting in touch with us. I want this in Italian language or in French. 
with their help, we enlarge our languages. It's all because they are there for help to enlarge the message. Actually, it's not me. It's really not about well, good. <laughs> that would be hard to do to do it all yourself. I it just so it does sound like a beautiful, a really a beautiful worldwide team effort. It's really very moving that you're managing to do this. So that's how you manage to get these materials into this large variety of languages. But you design the materials themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about them and how people use them? First, we actually collect our requests from all of the Animal Same Women's Global team, from campaigns team, from social media team, or the local individuals that we have. For example, we have left behind the Mother's Day. People have some requests to post on digital media or they wanted to show a physical material such a poster. I collect all of these requests and start to create them. After I build the composition, we presented our natives to take a look if the messaging getting right, if there is any grammar mistakes. So basically the process is simple for us. And after the approval, we announce in our channel. So everyone who has internet will be able to uh, reach those materials that we have present. Oh, so at some point you don't have to distribute them anymore. Well, you distribute them via internet and people can print them out and use them. And so far they can get them in 20 different languages. And after this year, they'll be able to get them in just about every language. All right. So I know it's important, or at least I, I got this impression from looking at the website, that you feel it's important that these materials have a particular look and that that be consistent. Can you tell us a little bit about what your goals are in creating materials, how they should look, and how you feel that they will communicate the message well? Mm-hmm. We actually have a communication code not to being aggressive. Animal Same Moment defines itself as a love-based community, not being aggressive. We do not use sharp messages to reach the audience that we need to reach. And of course, we have a communication language codes, our branding colors, our branding fonts, the photographs, the composition that we build is, has a code actually. So one of my responsibilities is also just to frame that look, if it fits Animal Save Moment's visuality or not as well, basically just like that. I really love the idea of there being this consistent appearance worldwide in so many different languages, but it's all branded, at least visually, and in its style and its look as Animal Save Movement. I think that's very powerful. We're talking about social media materials, possibly posters, I assume, for protests or vigils. And leaflets, do you do leaflets as well for people to hand out? Yes, we have all of the graphic design materials. I created thousands and thousands of materials for animal settlements, digitally, physically, business cards, pens, banners, really large banners, 10 meter long, perhaps, posters, brochures, Z-fold leaflets, anything you can imagine to enlarge the wording, we use every material that we can do. 
I would imagine that, you know, people who have that passion want to do something, but aren't sure what to do. Having these kinds of materials that are branded and reasonably sophisticated in their appearance really empowers them. They, they're not just a person out there who cares about animals. All of a sudden, they're representing a worldwide organization. Yes, I, I really would like to encourage people who would like to take a vigil or make a physical activism out there. You can get in Animal Say Moment or plantbasedtreaty.org to select a couple of material and print them and use them. They're free to use, so you are more than welcome to use. If you need any help for printing or digital materials, I'm here to assist you as well. Uh, you can get in touch with me by Instagram or you can email me. Perhaps we can, if there's an option like it, we can also put in the collections section as well. So you're more than welcome to use them. I love this. Yeah, it's very empowering. Very empowering to people who want to do something and aren't sure what to do. You mentioned it can either be animal save movement materials or plant-based treaty. And, and as we know, those are related organizations. Why would people choose one or the other? Is it more if they have an animal rights message, they would more go to the animal save? And if they have a climate message, they would go, go more to plant-based treaty? And would it depend on what their audience was in a particular event? Mm -hmm. In my opinion, it depends on the goal. But at the end of the day, the goal, I think all of the uh, audience's goal is the same to end the animal act, if it makes sense. Plant-based treaty is an overall system solution. As all of the audience know, there is a climate ocean and biodiversity crisis and fossil fuels and animal agriculture are the deriving force behind runaway global warming as well as extensive biodiversity laws, large-scale deforestation, species extension, water depletion, and ocean death zones, etc. Addressing only fossil fuels is not enough. We need action on food systems too. That's where plant-based treaty comes in. The three main greenhouses gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and nutritious dioxide, my apologies for my English, are the record no, levels. Your, your English is much, much, much better than my Turkish, I can assure you. <laughs> You're so cute. <laughs> Thank you. So these three main gases are in record levels and rapidly accelerating. And Animal Act contributes uh, to all three, but the main driver of methane and nutritious oxide emissions globally. So that's where plant-based treaty came in. It's a system solution to create a better planet using the system, because I do not know how can I say, going vegan is so precious and so valuable, but it may not be enough to save the planet in the time that we need. So we need a system solution. That, yeah. That's where plant-based treaty comes in. If you would yeah. like to read more about plant-based treaty, I would like to invite all of the listeners who are listening to my voice right now, plantbasedtreaty.org. So please sign the uh, plant-based treaty. It's free. You do not have to pay for anything. And at the end of the day, you will make 
a really good thing for our planet. We use those signatures in climate summits to enlarge our effects on the politicians so they can put on the table, just like the fossil fuels, put on the table the plant-based food solutions too. This is the reason why we so focus on plant-based ready because it is so urgent that we need to act right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I should mention, Anita Kronj was on the podcast, but a long time ago when she was really just first starting. So I would strongly encourage people to go back to the website because a lot of progress has been made since then. And I just have to say, like you hear so many people talking about how we need system solutions. And then some of them, you know, seem to think that individual solutions are unrelated to system solutions. But I don't think that's true. Going vegan yourself is a step toward, but it can't be enough. What you're doing is really telling people, well, you can be part of creating a system solution. Going vegan isn't your only job. You actually can do this. You can be part of this. And I think it's so empowering. And I'm just going to read something off of the website, which I just found almost chilling in its hopefulness. The theory of momentum-driven organizing suggests mobilizing at least 3.5% of the population in nonviolent direct action and persuading majority public opinion for there to be major progress in the goals of achieving social change. 3.5% is a very small number. But when you're fighting for something that's right and that makes sense and that you can communicate and you do manage to communicate, it really is enough to change the world, isn't it? I think so. I believe so. We also read that through both these individual and system change together, the communities, the businesses, the governments can work together at all levels and point out the immortation. We also wrote that adopting a vegan diet is the single biggest action a person can take for the planet. And the IPCC agrees that a shift towards a plant-based diet can significantly reduce food-related greenhouse gases. This info, I think, it's so beautiful. So I would like to read it out. An Oxford University study calculated that large changes in the food system would be necessary. That is, everyone adopting a plant-based diet on a global scale to reduce food emissions as much as 70 percent. It's it's really a huge number, 70 percent. It's tremendous. Just by eating plant-based food, uh, that's possible. That is really delightful, hopeful, I think. Yeah, it really is. There is hope here, but hope has to be joined with action. And that's Mm -hmm. what you're helping people do. And if there's somebody listening here, an individual or an individual with a few people, and they want to start a chapter, how do they end up talking to you to get those materials? And what resources do you provide them with to start off Mm -hmm. with? If you would like to start a new chapter in Animal Same Moment, please visit animalsamemoment.org. You will see... Uh, menu, start a chapter, please click that start a chapter headline. You will see step by step or you can just get in touch with us. We have also our email address, hello at animalsamemoment.org. So we are here to help whatever you would like to do. It can be climate-based solution, health-based solution or PBT solution or animal safe, more ethical-based activism, whatever you would like to do on the field, we are here to support you. Please just do not hesitate to get in touch with us. You can just click 
the animalsamoments.org. It's amazing. It really is the way you're putting this together and the way it really feels like it's planet wide. That by clicking that site uh, on animalsave.org, you're connecting yourself to people all over the world who get it about animals and who get it about how we're going to lose the planet if we don't do something. Once they start a group and get in touch with you, how do they know whether they're being effective? Do they have ways of tracking the work that they're doing? Mm-hmm. There are lots of different cultures in the world and Animal Samod is an international organization that works more than eight countries. So the meaning of being effective can be changed in every single country. For example, in Toronto, making a pixel visual is so effective in that area. But I live in Turkey, for example, we cannot do anything related with pigs because Turkey is a Muslim country and they have so big boundaries with pigs, people who got religious, people who see the pigs so forbidden, they are dirty, they must be in hell kind of things. So the communication language and being effective can be changed in every single country. This is the reason why, for example, in Turkey, we are focusing on plant-based treaty. We are talking about plant-based food systems instead of trying to tell people veganism, because veganism is so new in Turkey and people have really big boundaries on veganism. So being effective can be different in every single country. In, For example, in Africa, they're also focusing on plant-based treaty as well. But for example, in India, which is a culture which is related plants so beautifully, it is so easy to talk about veganism, for example. Yeah, yeah. So it can be changed in every single country. This is the reason why. So for every type of location, we create a different tick to communicate the target group. This is the reason why, why we have thousands and thousands of graphic materials because we have thousands of different cultures and audience. That makes so much sense. And it's amazing that you've created all of those materials. But pulling back from the worldwide movement and just focusing on Turkey, is there an Animal Save chapter in Turkey? And what kind of work does it do? Mm-hmm. Yes, Animal Save Moment Ankara chapter was opened four years ago. Chapter means kind of located activists. We have Istanbul Animal Save, Ankara Animal Save, Eskişehir Animal Save, and Izmir Animal Save. So we are located four main cities in Turkey. And what we are doing is there are so many different activities that we have done in Turkey. We make vigils. A vigil is kind of signature activism in Animal Save movements. Yeah. So we do vigils and we do workshops, planting workshops, for example, or Tirin Ilgün, who is the queen of Turkey activists, some plant-based workshops, plant-based milks, plant-based cheese, plant-based meats. There are lots of things that we have to do. We screen movies, documentaries that we think they are having the message of veganism in climate concern, in health concern, in animal concern, such as sea spray sea, 
such as Dominion, Breaking Boundaries. My octopus teacher, we have screened almost perhaps 50 screenings so far. We also collab with the cafes and restaurants in different cities to collect endorsements for PBT and just to develop their menus to put some options, plant-based options, their menus as well. We go universities to talk about plant-based food systems. We collab with the doctors, the dietitians. We do street activism just to give cupcakes, give milks to people, just to invite them to talk with us. Uh, we have lots of brochures, Z-fold brochures and leaflets and booklets. Uh, if they have any questions in their heads, how I'm going to do this in Turkey? We have also a really large starter kit for those who have questions in their head. Where do I get my protein? Where do I get my calcium or iron? Uh, with these doctors' help, we created a really reliable guide. So they will find all of the answers on there if they are not able to talk with us. And we are trying to reach every single corner if we are able to in Turkey. And we also had a, a festival a couple of weeks ago, which I am so proud of. We have made Turkey's very first uh, 100% vegan festival a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so it's all about their Nigun's, who is our regional liaison for Middle East. Her efforts made the city something else. So the uh, municipality, the municipality was so open to adopt a plant-based system. So we have done so many great things. If you would like to hear, I also can mention about these too. Yeah, no, I'm very excited to hear that. I'm very impressed that the municipality is, I, I assume you're talking about government officials, that they are very open-minded about this. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I would love to. So uh, it is hard to say Turkey is a vegan-friendly country. In fact, all the vegan products were banned from being sold in the markets last year. Oh, yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> yes. So what we once said would only be possible to see in Turkey after a decade or so, we have actually brought to life in the past weeks. Uh, I'm so proud of the members of my team because we have organized, like I said, the 100% vegan festival, which was not a thing in Turkey so far. And the outcomes of the festival are also so mind-blowing as well. <laughs> uh, many thanks to Mayor of Didim. They were so open to adapt the city to plant-based. There were no access to plant-based food except water in the area before. But now there are lots and lots of cafes and restaurants put a couple of plant-based uh, alternatives on their permanent menus. Before Backfest 2023, we went to the city to carry out some workshops at 10 businesses, including one hotel for the tourists, to help them implement a vegan food their menus. This led the city to be a vegan-friendly city overall. Also, the municipality allocated a buffet for vegan food that would serve to people 12 hours a day to seaside. 
which was not a thing as well so far. And the mayor is considering to start a veganic farm in his jurisdiction. <laughs> also, oh my gosh. Yes. Wow, you, you guys are really <laughs> making a lot of progress. A veganic farm. Yes. Wow. This will, yes, this will be a first as well. So also we will be partners in another festival, which is a lavender festival called Lavender Festival in July as well. He will announce them being the first municipality to start a veganic farm. And we owe the realization of all of these efforts to Diren Ilgun, who is one of our uh, activists. Just like I said, she put a tremendous amount of effort to make all of this happen. And uh, with your help, with this audio self, I would like to thank again. I did perhaps a hundred times, but I would like to thank again for being so powerful, passionate. I, I cannot thank you enough. We cannot thank you enough. Junilkin, thanks wow. for being here. I thank you as well. Like That is amazing, the amount of work you're doing. And it sounds like you're creating real, real change there. I, I'm very excited to hear about it. And the fact that the government officials are receptive and open, I mean, that doesn't happen unless a lot of legwork has been done to create that positive atmosphere. So yeah, I'm incredibly impressed about what's going on in Turkey. I'm so glad that we caught up with you today, Zeynep. This is really exciting. And I really hope that people listening, you know, there are some people probably who are very comfortable in the amount of activism they're doing, but so many of us feel that we want to be doing more and aren't sure what's the best way to do it. And it just sounds like you're really the animal safe movement. And of course, within that, the plant-based treaty movement are, are creating, creating that possibility for people to find a way to be really active in a way that really counts. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. I'm thrilled to hear about it all. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's my honor to talk with you here, Marianne. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our stories this week are from all over the place. Well, they're, they're from a typical site, but they're on varied subjects, not specifically on the anxiety of the meat industry about animal welfare and the suffering of animals. I mean, not that they're anxious about the suffering. They're just usually anxious about that coming up in people's consciousness. But different issues are also coming up in people's consciousness. This first one is from the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves on Meeting Place. And the title of the column is Get Ready, Meat and Poultry Industry. The unions are coming. And this this article points out some pretty interesting factors. And of course, anything that costs the industry money is good for animals because the problem is that they, you know, they sell their heavily subsidized products at a huge, huge discount and makes it difficult for anything else to compete. 
And one of the things that they spend as little money as possible on, which is clear from this article, is, of course, I mean, as we know, the, the people who work for them or some of the people who work for them. This article points out that the overall U.S. hourly workforce is 63% white, but the meat and poultry industry workforce is 34.5% white. So that means that this is very much a an industry which is, you know, employing people probably who are vulnerable in one way or another. Latinx employees have risen to 16.8% in the in the full economy and 34.9% in the meat and poultry industry. So, uh, and Mexico is providing a lot of those workers and you've got to believe they're being taken advantage of. And believe me, this article helps us understand how much they're being taken advantage of. So he points out that medium level, medium level executive compensation in the meat and poultry industry is $258,837 a year, which, you know, it's a very nice salary, very nice salary indeed. All right. This compares to $33,580 annually, which is $16.79 an hour for the average meat and poultry industry plant employee. Well, that's the average. <laughs> They're making 33000 So you can imagine, you know, a lot of them are making less than that. Uh, so that means that the executives are making about 7.7 .7 times more than the plant employee. They like to call them slaughterhouses plants, uh, as we've pointed out before, which is an irony that is just too rich to talk about anymore. <laughs> And he's worried they're vulnerable with the predominance of immigrant labor in MPI plants, that's meat and poultry industry plants, a low current union representation and a history of unions infiltrating, infiltrating, <laughs> infiltrating underrepresented industries like the meat and poultry industry. There is probably a pent up demand for some sort of compensation leveling in our meat and poultry industry. Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. Like, People are not making any money, and the less you pay them, the less you can charge for your products. He has a lot of advice for people who uh, are confronted by by uh, the National Labor Relations Board with information that a petition has been circulated saying that they're, the plant's employees want to be represented by a union, a certain percentage, you know, is, which is what the law requires. What he did in the past, he would begin immediately— by treating all employees as we ourselves would want to be treated. He does say that he had just started on the job. So there is an implication here that it, the, the prior treatment, apparently, which was not how he would want to be treated, was not his fault. Altering a my way or the highway management employee attitude imbalance. All right. Well, you know, I guess that is the way, one way to forestall union negotiations. There are others as well, but... Uh, the, the nicest one would be just to improve conditions so much that, you know, they don't want to, they, they, they don't want a union anymore, which would be very foolish of them, I think. But, uh, and, you know, it happened again that he defeated a union in another place. What advice do I have for you to get ready for any impending union organizational attempts at your company? Simple. Treat all employees like you would want to be treated, which might include paying them more than $33,000 a year, average. So paying a hell of a lot of them even less than that. So pay them some money, guys. Uh, and, you know, I would like to see the unions get in there. But in any case, I'd like to see more money being spent on employees and less discounts being uh, given to your products. It's not easy being green. So this is another area of anxiety, obviously, for the industry. This is all from Meeting Place, the writer's block column by Tom Johnston. 
and in the environment, you know, it keeps popping up. You know, this is mostly a beef-focused site. And he starts out by talking about uh, there's an, by the Environmental Working Group, which is uh, fi- has filed a petitioner with USDA to prohibit the use of climate-friendly claims on packages of beef. There is no such thing as climate-friendly beef, says the Environmental Working Group. This is the reception, he indignantly says, in some cases that the meat industry has gotten in recent years as it seeks a seat at the sustainability table. Well, sorry, but there is no such thing as climate-friendly beef. You cannot make it climate-friendly. So you, you don't have a place at the sustainability table. This is not a question of improving your product. You can't improve your product. Like, there's a limit to what you can do. Uh, and then he gives an example from the pork industry, which actually, you know, is is still hideously climate unfriendly, but not as much as beef. Uh, so they like to compare themselves to pork. The more I visit companies, he says, and listen to those leading their ESG, that's in, you know, in environment sustainability, and I, don't, I forget what. I'm <laughs> sorry. The more convinced I am of their sincere intent to improve in areas like reducing emissions and water use. Yeah, the more I hear from the, indus- the industry, the more I am convinced that they're very, very sincere as well. I have to say, they, they reek of sincerity. He goes on to say, these are passionate, problem-solving people. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> At the same time, oh, a caveat here, their employers are in the business of making money too. Yeah, well, yeah, we're all in the business of making money. That's what business is about in this country. And must find ways to recoup the expense of such environmental efforts. Yay, one new way to get credit for their efforts in the form of premiums tied to climate-friendly products. So I guess his suggestion is is that we should ig- ignore the fact that there is no such thing as climate-friendly brief. Well, I mean, I guess he wouldn't really say that. But, but we need to give them credit, you know, even if it's not that great. Because otherwise, you know, they won't be able to make any extra money off of it, even though it's not that great. Yeah, bullshit. Literally bullshit. Let people eat plants. Uh, He likes how Colin Beal, the cattle rancher and PhD who developed low-carbon beef. Yeah, I bet, you know, you can get a degree in that. The first USDA-approved cattle GHG reduction certification program. Oh, my God. Framed it in a past interview. And according to Colin, I don't really worry so much about the criticism that this program's requirements aren't enough because it's an improvement and we can make it better from there. So, yeah, that seems to be the point of this column. As long as it's not as bad as it as it currently is, it's better. So they should get a lot of credit for it and be able to charge more money for it. Yeah, right. A uh, lot to say about that. All right, finally. This is not from the industry. And this is actually a great article. It's a column from uh, the Pagosa Daily, which is from Pagosa Springs, Colorado, And this is a column by one Lewis Cannon. Ready, fire, aim, the milk wars. Now, this is not a guy who has any attachment to either the industry or the food biz or whatever. He just happens, you know, he's just interested in this and that. And he happens to be writing a column about milk. He starts off by saying, your order has just been called at your morning coffee shop. Once you arrive at the beverage station, you're confronted with what seems to be at least 17 options for milk in your coffee. Selections ranging from regular dairy to oat, almond, and soy creamer options abound these days, which is good news for vegans everywhere. 
but not everyone is pleased, namely the dairy industry. And as we all know, it's not just good news for vegans. I mean, a hell of a lot of people. Like everybody in Starbucks orders soy, as far as I can tell. Don't go to Starbucks very often. But when I do, it just seems like that's all anybody gets. They must be crazy. Anyway, so he has this comment from Lori Fisher with the American Dairy Coalition. The American Dairy Coalition is urging organizations as well as dairy farmers to ask the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to enforce the standards of identity on milk, which would allow only traditional dairy products to be labeled as milk. Quote, plant-based companies and trade associations, including the American Beverage Association, are supporting and congratulating FDA on its draft guidance, which could mean full speed ahead for fake alternatives to be labeled as milk without containing any milk. And it is a total fabrication. So, yeah, they're pretty upset about the fact that, you know, soy milk might be allowed to call itself soy milk. And so this guy points out, well, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, all the types of milk was like whole, low-fat, skim, evaporated, condensed, and chocolate. And, of course, all of those come from a cow. There was also breast milk, he pointed out, but we didn't talk about that. But then there was, you know, coconut milk. And then there was uh, the fact that over in China, the Chinese have been using soy milk since the 14th century. They didn't call it milk because they didn't speak English. But the translation... (laughs) if you type it into Google Translate, is soy milk. Similarly, uh, the Arabic word for almond milk, uh, which has been existing since the 13th century. The point being, he says, it's difficult to support the claim that the use of the word milk for almond milk and soy milk and oat milk and all the other milks is a, quote, total fabrication. Considering that almond milk was a common ingredient in kitchens 500 years before we ever saw chocolate milk in the dairy case. And uh, yeah, so it's good to see. I just like this. This is from a totally mainstream site and, you know, totally mainstream column. He's not in the habit of talking about any of this stuff. And he thinks this is nonsensical. He also points out that plant-based milks are 75% less fat, lower in calories. They're environmentally more favorable. Methane doesn't come from almonds. So yeah, overall, he concludes non-dairy milks now represent 15% of the total quote-unquote milk market, much to the dairy industry's distress. So maybe 30% within the next few years. Let's make that 100%, okay? It's enough to make anyone want to use terms like fake alternatives and total fabrication. Yeah. Uh, So pretty cool, right? It feels like people are really, really on the side of calling this stuff milk, which is not surprising since we've been calling soy milk milk for for years. That wasn't so much of a rising anxiety, but it's a rising anxiety on the part of the industry. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock. 
section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 